Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. Hello. This is episode 39, and today we're going to be talking to me, <laughs> Dr. Christopher Troiano. Dr. Chris Troiano. There it is. His public debut, I guess, maybe not, but yeah, been able <laughs> one of the sign, first times. Been able to sign some emails to my college students with uh, Dr. Troiano on it. But yeah, basically, this is the, the premiere. <laughs> yeah yeah so obviously if he we can call him dr troiano now he's finished his doctorate degree all the coursework all the proposal all the recitals the whole dissertation defended signed submitted to proquest so people can find it online so he's done and today we're talking to him about his his research his doctoral dissertation yeah so that that should be online in the next few weeks it, it is all submitted and good to go. I purchased uh, two copies from ProQuest where you can like basically have them printed out and stick it in a, uh, a hardcover binding for you and make it look all nice. But then like I've seen what it looks like when it comes and it's literally just like a Word document printed out with a cover on it. So it might look yeah. a little cheap on the inside, but having it bound in a hardcover is going to be nice to have for sure. Yeah, you can <laughs> put it on your bookshelf and look at it every single day. Oh yeah, there you go. And now if I ever need to reference it, it's going to be a million times quicker to open up the document online and like Command F try to find right. something. It's like I'm never going to open the thing. But. Exactly. It's it's like a scrapbook essentially. Yeah, or like of, when you uh, release an album, like putting it like in a picture frame and hanging the CD on the wall, kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I guess we should get out of the way that all the promotional stuff so uh for everyone uh listening who's still listening to the intro if you didn't already skip ahead to the uh interview part uh you can support the show if you like what you're hearing uh you can support it on patreon in teespring that's the easiest way to do it and the most uh one of the most beneficial for us but also social media likes shares and all that stuff is fantastic as well that really helps spread the show online to new people uh, so you can find us on all social media platforms as well as youtube uh, so any support uh, you're willing to give on with any of that stuff is greatly appreciated. All right, well, let's get started. So um, I think probably the best way to do this is to start. Can you tell us, Chris, the or, sorry, Dr. Troiano, the <laughs> title, <laughs> yeah, the title of your dissertation um, and kind of just like a broad overview, maybe the scope and how you got to the final product, like kind of what your, what process you went through to kind of whittle down your interests into, into what it ended up being. Yeah. So it's a mouthful. The title of the dissertation is called From Antiquity to Academia, A History of Early American Brass Bands and a Way Forward for Their Adaptation Within Institutions of Higher Learning. So basically when I first started uh, wanting to figure out what I was going to write about for this final document for the dissertation, uh, Initially, I knew as a euphonium player that I needed to kind of diversify myself and find other avenues for playing and for making money because, as you know, Stephen, not a ton of opportunities for us out there. You and I are fortunate to play in a few groups together outside of school and stuff that do pay, uh, which is nice, but I was able to remember back growing up uh, I come from a musical family on Long Island, and my dad actually played in the Old Bethpage Village Brass Band under Dr. Kirby Jolly, who was one of our first guests on the show. And uh, I remember hearing my dad playing with that group growing up, 
and being here in Virginia, realizing that in our immediate Northern Virginia area, there was not a active uh, Civil War or early American brass band. So kind of forming a group like that to essentially be able to get gigs and get paid as a euphonium player was kind of the the initial interest of uh, becoming interested in this area of music. And then from that, realizing that there wasn't a band in Northern Virginia specifically, I thought it was interesting to see, well, if there's not one here, where are they? And trying to pinpoint who was currently active, knowing that Old Beth Page was on Long Island. They don't have a huge internet presence. So trying to really dig in and see who was active, where they're active, was the initial interest for this research project was really just kind of documenting that. But then it turned into, uh, obviously, there was bands that have existed as like reenactment Civil War bands that no longer exist. So Mm -hmm. that kind of earlier history of those bands made me really interested in kind of a larger scope of brass band history in the United States, both as they existed as historical ensembles in the 19th century, but then where that kind of transition point was that made them like novelty ensembles or ensembles that people reenacted and recreated uh, just really interested me. So all those things together, in addition to uh, my experience forming my own band at George Mason University through the Green Machine, the 8th Green Machine Regiment Band, all mm-hmm. those experiences kind of came together and formed what became that long dissertation title that I'm not going to repeat again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So kind of focusing on, um, like you said, uh, kind of the, the history of these groups, and then um, you offer some ideas of how how they can kind of be worked into college uh, to, to a college curriculum f- from both a history and a, like a performance perspective. So mm-hmm. we will talk, we'll cover all that. I'm sure <laughs> a little later on. For sure. Um, so talking about that history a little bit, we we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but can, can you give a brief rundown of kind of the, the American brass band movement? Cause you, you devote uh, a long chapter to it, uh, in the, in the final product, but um, just kind of the cliff notes version, maybe that can kind of give some context for uh, kind of the later ideas that you, that you flesh out. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was a a major part of the final product. The dissertation ended up being about like half historical providing context for this type of music. And then the second half was kind of more synthesis. And uh, as you said, that application into academia. So about the first half of the document, I kind of opened it up like, 2001 a space odyssey and it was like in the dawn of musical instruments there were bones and kind of i went all the way back to that and egyptian trumpets kind of mentioning them briefly and stuff but then yeah the way i started tracing it was tracing bands in general through the military so i Mm -hmm. was talking a little bit about the first uh military bands in germany france and england in about the 1600s. So before uh, 1763, there was kind of this uh, evolution of military bands over in Europe. Initially, military music kind of consisted primarily of like fife and drum music-ish, you know, predecessors to what we kind of think of today, but also like bagpipe ensembles, a lot of these like very reedy instruments. Uh, Eventually, oboes were brought in to military bands and were later replaced by clarinets Mm -hmm. and this was all kind of this gradual evolution happening between the three germany france and england but then in 1763 
uh, Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, uh, released a treatise that established bands of music. And mm-hmm. these bands of music, we've mentioned a few times on the show, but they were military bands uh, that consisted of two oboes, two clarinets, two horns, and two bassoons. So I kind of had that as one of the earliest examples of brass instruments being included in military music. And then from bands of music, as brass instruments were improved upon and developed and evolved, uh, including the incorporation of trombones, which is an earlier instrument, but then also uh, post horns, key bugles, ophiclides. These all were invented over time. And in 1835, we kind of have as a starting year in the United States for brass bands, all brass bands forming up in New England and in New York. Um, These brass bands were usually tied to militia units, as we've talked about on the show before. And then you go through, we talk about the Civil War. Again, these are all topics that we are very familiar with on the show, Mm -hmm. but just kind of giving the the broad overview. After the Civil War, brass bands were still popular, but during this time also there were mixed bands as well. We've had guests, Dr. Mark Jenkins and others, talk about the United States Marine Band, the West Point Band, uh, Patrick Gilmore's later concert bands. Uh, All these groups had woodwinds in them, during the time of the Civil War and later. Mm -hmm. Likewise, even once the golden age of concert bands came about with John Philip Sousa in about 1892, brass bands continued to exist also, both as civilian, like, town bands, but then, as we've talked with uh, Dr. Briner and Dr. Miller, how a lot of religious music, the Moravians and the Salvation Army, had brass music and brass bands active in the United States all through the 19th century, continuing into the 20th and into the 21st century. Um, So we've always had this tradition of brass music and wind band music happening in the United States at the same time. It was just Mm -hmm. really interesting seeing kind of the rise of the popularity of the brass band movement starting in 1835 and continuing through the mid-19th century and kind of petering out. And then this revival uh, that began mostly thanks to the Civil War centennial, which we can talk about in a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting the the kind of the journey that they've taken and like the the musical function of them too, because we've talked a lot about how even even back with the the bands of music and like the harmony music tradition and all that stuff kind of started out as really functional music. Like like yeah. in the case of brass bands, you know, like they were playing to move people, especially during the during the Civil War, like move people from one place to another like that was a major role that they had but then they also uh were kind of you know playing and stewarding the popular music of the day too um so it's just kind of a really interesting like line that they that they kind of they walked on both sides of it um and the interesting thing about that that you mentioned harmony music how a lot of times that style of music and that ensemble type is usually referred to as some of the earliest like wind band music, if we want to use that like an air quotes kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But harmony music got its instrumentation from the military bands, right? So the idea that harmony music was the first is not super accurate because it existed in the military just prior to that. So it's interesting how military music, marching music, bands in general are often kind of uh, relegated to 
the shadows and the sides of music history, which a topic that you and I have talked about a lot on the show, and I'm sure will continue to pop up a few times (laughs) today as well. But yeah, just a really interesting evolution, as you said. Right. Yeah. And because they, you know, had pretty serious, like functional roles in society, you know, they had to play outdoors a lot, which is a reason why you don't see like strings in bands of music or like a harmony music ensemble, um, because they needed instruments that, you know, you could hear outside (laughs) and that were a little more durable than like, you know, thin, thin, like pieces of wood and gut strings and stuff like that. Um, you know, and then obviously brass instruments are the next logical evolution. They're fairly durable, you know, all Mm -hmm. things considered, they can take a beating, they can be outside and they can be played loudly. Um, Mm -hmm. so (laughs) they're kind of, it's like a perfect, the perfect instrument to kind of fill all those functional roles. And then with all the technological development, you know, people got really good at them. So (laughs) the music got harder and harder and more exciting and more exciting. So that's why that's why bands exist now. I, yeah. I think to me, I mean, like military band concerts are just kind of fun and like community band concerts are fun. Um, so definitely. not the, not it's... the poo poo on orchestras or anything, but yeah, there's definitely a different spirit and different function as you keep on saying to this kind of music yeah. that that's really interesting and enjoyable in its own way. Yeah. I mean, speak for yourself. I'm definitely poo pooing orchestras. <laughs> <laughs> you got some loud in your face stuff that that's great to listen to. Yeah, no, definitely. And and what does all that loud and face stuff rely on? The brass instruments. That's true. That's um, true. Okay. All right. I'll stop. I'll stop uh, bagging orchestras here. <laughs> um, so we talked about a little bit. Players. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So there's a healthy uh, dose of bias here uh, <laughs> because we don't get to be in the orchestra. Yeah. You talked a little bit about... Um, some of the various forms through the Moravian uh, tradition and the Salvation Army tradition that kind of brass bands exist in the 20th and 21st century. Um, how are these ensembles different from what existed in the 19th century that, that came before them? What's what's kind of the difference? I mean, obviously there's a pretty big difference between the British brass band tradition and like how, how that has blossomed into this whole um, tradition that really kind of focuses it's still a community, you know, aspect, but it really focuses around competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of what, what are some of the differences between like the modern day brass bands that, that we kind of see uh, all around and these 19th century brass bands? So uh, before all that, you mentioned Moravians and Salvation Army. Yeah, those are both religious organizations that their brass music is completely devoted to worship and and their religion. Um, Dr. Nathan Miller can, can talk about the Salvation Army's impact and influence and purpose and all that stuff much better than I can. So I'll refer our listeners to his episode. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in terms of groups, like we just mentioned, the Brass Band of Battle Creek, River City Brass Band, Fountain City Brass Band, we can go on and on. A lot of these groups are what we call British style brass bands as you said, because they have the instrumentation that matches the competitive British brass band uh, over in the UK. And these ensembles have become incredibly popular in the United States uh, for for various reasons. Two that I can think of off the top of my head is one is the success that Kevin Steeze has had at James Madison University with the James Madison University brass band. That's really... Uh, gotten a lot of academic institutions, uh, University of Georgia, University of North Texas, 
a handful of schools now have British style brass bands that compete and, mm-hmm. and play British competitive music. Um, the other is NABA, the North American Brass Band Association, has become very active in the United States and has been getting a, a very large following and great support from amateurs and professionals all in the, the United States, helping to really foster and promote this unique genre and style of music. I think it's really appealing. Those British-style brass bands are appealing to musicians, as you and I both know, having played uh, in them. You currently play in the brass band in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British brass band music is just so much more difficult and demanding and a lot more fun. It's kind of like when a lot of groups uh, at colleges will have like a trumpet ensemble or a trombone so- ensemble or a tuba euphonium ensemble. Mm-hmm. Those ensembles are meant to give a lot of those musicians more active parts, opportunities playing primary melodic lines and technical passages this whole ensemble is geared to do that for every single brass instrument so i know that that interest has as i've said made british style brass bands extremely popular but it completely uh overshadows the fact that there are american style brass bands Mm -hmm. if we were to but as i mentioned in my dissertation if we were to mention something as an american brass band we would think of groups like the Brass Band of Battle Creek, River City, James Madison. We would think of right. British-style brass bands in the United States, not necessarily something that makes it uniquely American. An mm-hmm. American brass band is just a British brass band that happens to exist here. That's why I chose in early on in my dissertation to spend a good amount of time going through each ensemble type, like British-style brass bands, Salvation Army brass bands, orchestral brass ensembles like Philip Jones, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Civil War slash mid-19th century brass bands and showing how those bands, the repertoire is completely different. They're playing, mm-hmm. as you said, popular music like marches, waltzes, quicksteps, functional music, as opposed to these British-style brass bands, which are playing purely competitive music, very flashy, showy, uh, technically demanding or lyrically demanding. You know, there's there's difficulties in, in some yeah. of those ballads and stuff that, that need to be played also. Right. Um, so the repertoire is completely different. American, I'll say early American style brass bands like the show is dedicated to. The instrumentation mm-hmm. is not uh, set like British style brass bands are. British style brass bands have a set number of musicians that can perform in them. Early American brass bands, that number and instrumentation fluctuates through its entire history. But as we know, loosely, these early American brass bands have the instrumentation of uh, outer E-flat voices filled in with B-flat voices. So E-flat mm-hmm. soprano, B-flat soprano, E-flat alto, B-flat tenor baritone bass, E-flat bass uh, as like the main skeleton of those ensembles, which is similar right. to British-style brass bands. But uh, yeah, seeing them side by side, you can very easily see that there's a difference in number of players as well as the instruments being played as well. Yeah, yeah. So the the early American brass bands are typically a lot smaller than the British style brass bands. But like you said, that that structure in the instrumentation, you know, no matter how many players are playing, you still have that alternating E flat, you know, E flat cornet, B flat cornet, E flat alto horn, B flat tenor horn, baritone, you know, that Mm -hmm. little kind of ambiguous area that exists there with what you want to call the instruments, you know, and then, and then rounding out with your, with your E flat bases. Um, And that's, that's kind of what, that's what I love about both 
the American and the kind of British style is that having that that structure with the instrumentation really kind of makes it like a, a huge community ensemble mm -hmm. um, because what that instrumentation facilitates is hopping around the instruments when people are you know not there for a rehearsal or a gig you don't have to you can yeah. just read the music and slap down the same fingerings and it'll come out and sound right yeah yeah very, <laughs> you very know which for sure yeah which then kind of produces a little bit of an issue maybe not for some people but definitely for me like if you're ever conducting one of the groups and you're looking at a score <laughs> things that you're hearing and like what you hear and what you see doesn't always kind of like match up with what your brain wants it to be yeah. so <laughs> you know people who are much better conductors than me and devote a lot more time to score study than i do <laughs> I'm sure that's not an issue, uh, but it was for me, particularly in some of the rehearsals for your lecture recital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we can talk about that off the air. We can embarrass, <laughs> I can embarrass myself without a bunch of people listening. <laughs> um, then, but then along, along all those lines too, you know, part of the reason why we named the show, what we did and how I'm trying to use this term early American brass band. It's meant to, again, make this distinction between these British ensembles that we just spent all this time talking about, but then even within 19th century ensembles, uh, you know, there's antebellum groups and there's late Victorian groups also. You know, we have, uh, currently we have the antebellum marine band in Gettysburg is one of these early brass groups that's playing. And then we have Newberry's Victorian cornet band mm -hmm. and the independent silver band are current groups that play after the Civil War. So, just using the term Civil War Brass Band is excluding these groups as well as like groups like the Americus Brass Band or the Chestnut Brass Company groups that uh, don't have any type of visual impression uh, but do play a lot of the music from the Civil War period. But then, again, Antebellum and Late Victorian as well. So early American Brass Band, yeah, meant to include everybody the whole 19th century but then also include like current groups also like how we call them baroque ensembles you know like a college will have a baroque ensemble but that's a current group you know so mm -hmm. early american brass band kind of uh following that same template if you would right so part of part of what you did uh in your dissertation was come up with a list of all of the early american brass bands that are active today so can you kind of talk a little bit about Maybe briefly, like how you compiled that list at <laughs> first, um, and then um, you know, kind of how many you came up with, and if there are any kind of broad, you know, trends across that list, you know, like kind of, kind of what the what the um, like goals of some of these bands are. If there are any like kind of common yeah, common yeah. goals between them. So I I compiled this list. I'm sure a lot of listeners. Uh, I probably talked to you and tried to get some information. <laughs> and if you plan a group, try to get some information about your group uh, for this list, which is available on our website under the resources tab. Um, basically, I, I had a few different methods of doing this. I uh, use libraries, search engines, and uh, online shopping websites to basically try to find every single recording that I could of, mm -hmm. of bands playing this music. So I was able to compile a, a large number of names just that way. Um, you can look at the discography page on our website for that list. Right. Um, National Civil War Brass Band Festival in Kentucky that was held two years. I would reached out to them, got a list of their participants, 
Gettysburg Remembrance Day Parade, reached out to them, got a list of all their participants. Vintage Band Festival, reached out to them, got a list of all their previous participants. Yari Villa Nueva was a big help with his page, uh, Civil War Brass Bands, or sorry, Civil War Bands that Yari runs. I was able to go through there, uh, find any videos that he posted of bands playing, looked on YouTube, uh, searched on Facebook, basically used all these methods to get every single name of current groups that I could, and then one by one try to get contact information and reach out to them, ask if they're still currently performing, uh, if they are, when did they form, if they're not, when did they form and when did they end. Uh, so I was able to compile a, a very large list of all these names that I didn't necessarily have dates tied to and was mm-hmm. eventually able to whittle it down to currently there being approximately 50 uh, what we could call early American brass bands currently existing. And there's about 50. Um, gotcha. And those are active today? Yeah, those are. By existing, yeah. you mean active today? Yep, yep. Uh, COVID notwithstanding, a lot of right. these groups say that, yeah, before COVID and once COVID subsides, they will be out there playing gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that's, you know, some could have fallen through the cracks that have zero internet presence that members in the community are unaware of. Uh, groups that ha- are forming today, you know, mm-hmm. obviously are not on this list. So there, there's a few uh possibilities of of groups falling through the cracks and also of groups folding you know deciding to not exist anymore you know on a whim or last minute or for unfortunate circumstances you know mm-hmm. all these things can contribute to the list not being 100 percent accurate but a lot of time and energy did go into creating what we do currently have so i'm pretty confident uh that we are plus or minus just a very small handful <laughs> Uh, with that active list. Yeah. And I, yeah. I found that most of the bands, you know, have the visual impression by either wearing a uniform from the 19th century. Uh, the majority of the bands do play on period or reproduction instruments, though there's a handful that play on modern instruments. Uh, usually that is uh, a financial reason rather than a conscious decision to play on modern instruments. Uh, as we mentioned many times before on the show, those instruments are very rare and expensive and hard to come by. So bands that play on modern instruments is usually that accessibility kind of barrier that they have. Um, part of my dissertation talked about you know trying to find where this reawakening of these brass bands were. You know, I we don't have images of people wearing Civil War uniforms playing in brass bands. You know, during World War II and, you know, through the early 20th century, you know, like that was a thing that obviously evolved into other things and went away, but then Mm -hmm. came back at some point. So trying to trace that history, uh, you know, I saw that veterans from the Civil War would go to uh, reenactments and reunions and play in bands. And that tradition kind of petered out with the veterans uh, passing away in the early late 19th, early 20th century. And mm-hmm. then as is fitting for our show, the very beginning, as we did with episode two, uh, could be traced to Frederick Fennell and his 1960 Eastman recording from the Civil War. And that's really regarded as the beginning of the, the reawakening of the Civil War brass band movement. Yeah. Brass bands formed during the Civil War centennial. The most notable one 
is uh, the First Brigade Band. The First Brigade Band formed in 1964. But an interesting thing that I found in my research was that there was actually a band uh, before the First Brigade Band. We often say that the First Brigade Band was the first, as I just said. But Mm -hmm. being in 1964, I thought that that was weird since that's basically the end of the Civil War centennial. So they went through, you know, four, about four years of no Civil War brass band music happening at the time, which I thought was weird. I saw that the Salem Band, the band that has its ancestry with the 26th North Carolina Band, they did some performances in uniform uh, with period instruments during the Civil War centennial. But there's another group called the 2nd Brigade Band out of Springfield, Ohio. Mm. Uh, This group actually formed around 1961, performed Civil War music in uniform throughout the Civil War Centennial Celebration. Now, granted, they were playing on uh, modern instruments. There's pictures of them with sousaphones and even saxophones. But I made the reasoning that they were playing on modern instruments then because they didn't have the knowledge of or the accessibility to a lot of these uh, earlier instruments. You know, granted, we had the Fennel recording in 1960, but things take time to kind of become a thing as well. Right. So, you know, the Fennel made his impact, inspired plenty of people. You know, the First Brigade Band will often reference Fennel as being a major inspiration for them, and they had a lot of collectors that allowed them to begin playing on period brass instruments. But the 2nd Brigade Band in Springfield, Ohio... I have down as technically being the first one, despite not being on period instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that that was really interesting. There's pictures in my dissertation that when that comes out, people can uh, can look that up and and see the the first, if we want to call it that. <laughs> yeah. Did you get a sense of when um, talking about the instruments now specifically, uh, kind of when these groups found? out i don't want to say like found out about the instruments from the time because obviously we all knew that the instruments they were playing on in the in the 1860s and before you know were not the instruments that we play on today um but i'm wondering maybe this is uh, you know looking at that data in a way you haven't but like is there a time where a lot of these bands either when they were newly forming or if they had previously formed like started getting those instruments so what I found, like Fred Bankovic from the the First Brigade Band was an instrument collector since, you know, the the end of World War II. There were instrument collectors in uh, throughout the 20th century just collecting brass instruments and, and novelty instruments, and these instruments were all being collected. Now, somebody like Fred Bankovic uh, wasn't necessarily just collecting Civil War brass instruments. He was collecting everything, right. and then... During the Civil War centennial, uh, when the idea came to form a group that would have existed of the period, then they were able to choose the instruments from his collection, and and I believe from somebody else's too, um, take the instruments from his collection that fit what they were already planning on doing, and Mm -hmm. uh, be able to create what became the first brigade band. Um, Groups, like I said, the, the Salem Band had the historical instruments from the 26th North Carolina, from those guys, they had a number of those instruments in their private collection. So they knew, you know, what instruments were to be used. Uh, Fred Fennell was able to do the research and figure out what instruments he was going to use and what was accurate for the brass instruments. At least we know he used modern woodwind instruments on that recording. Right. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the instruments were being collected, you know, throughout the 20th century, and then when the the spark was lit for these brass bands to become a thing with the help of Fennell and Benkovic and the Civil War Centennial, they were able to kind of repurpose them or, or finally apply these instruments that were being collected to these uh, these newly forming brass bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure we've had guests on, you know, in, in both seasons who talked about how big of a uh, help and hindrance eBay was <laughs> in the <laughs> early days. Uh, you know, Definitely. yeah, because the I mean, the Internet is, you know, it's its whole own thing. But that, that really, I feel like probably helped spread these instruments around a little bit, maybe drove up the price <laughs> in the beginning when everyone mm-hmm. was like, Oh my goodness, like here's this instrument, here's this instrument. And they were just kind of trying to snatch them up. But um, mm-hmm. so I'm sure that that then kind of opened the door for a lot of these other bands to to get the instruments and then make that pivot from playing on modern horns to playing on period horns. Yeah, definitely. And then they, yeah. these instrument collectors became, you know, experts in the field. And you had Benkovic, and then Benkovic eventually got Mark Elrod, you know, involved in the hobby. And uh, we had Steve Dillon on the show who said that mm-hmm. he kind of brokered a lot of these these antique brass instrument sales and stuff. So the people that had the instruments and uh, were interested in the instrument-specific details of these ensembles oftentimes were the ones that were going out there and helping the other instrument, uh, the other bands kind of form and uh, either loaning or selling or donating you know, instruments from their collections to supply these newly forming brass bands that popped up in the 1860s, 70s and such. Right. Yeah. Um, so then um, as far as the gigs that these bands were playing and bands now play, are they mostly like uh, kind of living history kind of kind of things and reenactments and stuff? An interesting thing with that is that many of the the bands and the musicians in those bands, as we've seen on this show also, do not consider themselves to be reenactors. A lot mm-hmm. of the, the band's people believe that they are musicians, either professional or amateur, essentially, you know, this is taboo, essentially wearing a costume to to give uh, an entertaining performance. Now, there is an important element of education uh, and responsibility within those types of performances that the bands kind of uh, take upon themselves to do. Um, but then even in addition to those bands that have that mentality there are plenty of ensembles out there that are comprised of reenactors like we spoke with uh eric totman right mm-hmm. his band out in san francisco is formed primarily of civil war reenactors uh we have some friends up in ohio that are very heavily involved in the uh civil war reenacting field the america's brass band right when it initially formed we were told was originally a reenacting band Mm-hmm. Yeah, these bands are primarily now, and I say that broadly and again in air quotes, primarily now going out playing. Yeah, they can be doing historical concerts. They can be going to these historical sites or historical events and giving presentations at them. But again, the they largely consider themselves to be uh, hired ensembles, like giving an entertaining performance rather than living out uh the reenacting hobby and again that's mm-hmm. very broadly because i mean right. like yari villain the way a good friend of our show we know that he 
takes federal cities sometimes out and they do the the whole camping thing. So right. can't can't say that it's definitive for everybody, but again, just very broadly is is what I found with those groups for sure. So another thing you did then in the dissertation, which we've we've aired out on the show in some previous episodes was that you went and surveyed some college uh, music history courses. Um, and so when you, when you did that, what were you looking for and what did you find when you were going through and, and taking a look at these uh, curriculums? That was an aspect of my proposal that did end up changing for the final product. Oh, okay. Once yeah. I started uh, beginning that research to try to see how prevalent uh, American America's band tradition and brass band tradition was being taught at the collegiate level. I saw that that by itself could be an entire project and an entire mm-hmm. dissertation. So the way that I got around that or, or altered that element of the research is I was able to discover that the two main music history textbooks that are used in uh, music history courses at colleges are uh, the Western music histories put out by Norton and Oxford. Mm-hmm. So those are the two companies that put out the, the two most universally used textbooks that are used for like uh, music undergrad who has to take like four semesters of music history. Right. It's, it's the Oxford and the Norton that's generally used. And I, I think I've got the Oxford on a shelf not too yeah, far away from yeah, here. Right exactly. now. <laughs> hey, there you go. So I got both of those textbooks did a search of the the table of contents the index and went through it and just like very broadly i'll say like between the norton and the oxford there's thousands plural of pages of material between the two and like very roughly uh maybe there's a total between the two textbooks 20 pages total that have any sort of reference to band or usually that's even to Sousa. uh mm-hmm. One of them had a paragraph ref- reference to Frederick Fennell and his influence on wind ensembles at the collegiate level. But considering 20 pages between thousands of pages of history that's being taught to music students, it's inconsequential. You know, it's a shame how, how little that's addressed. And as we mentioned, how military music or marching music or band music is just not the focus of those kinds of um, classes, which in my research I have in the introduction, I, I reference all these figures that I just mentioned and say how the college students that are exiting the programs are oftentimes either like playing in community bands or teaching bands after they get their music ed degree. And out of all their education, they maybe get, you know, 15 pages of history of the thing that they're actually going out there and playing in and, and teaching every single day. And that's exactly. a topic that, that you and I have talked about a number of times on this show also, but right. it, it really is just super fascinating or if that's the right word, unfortunate, sad, whatever it is that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that the history is not, not taught because I think we're both in the same boat that we think that that well-rounded education and information about the topic that you're engaged in every day can just better inform your interpretation and uh can help your appreciation for the activity that you're actually involved with and right improve the experience (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and it's kind of like that thing where like if we want 
maybe this is too like general and slightly combative <laughs> of a way to put it but like if we want bands to like at this point not just talking about like early american brass bands or brass bands but like if we want bands to kind of be on the same pedestal that we give orchestras how are you going to do that without teaching it maybe not you know equally to how you teach it like orchestral history and like keyboard history Mm -hmm. um you know but i mean you got to talk about it at some point (laughs) in a college degree especially you know like for people like us like we both have music ed degrees Mm -hmm. um and we're both euphonium players so like what we're going to do with our music ed degree obviously we, we would would be certified to teach band orchestra choir general music mm-hmm. um but what we're going to be the jobs are going to be applying for are like going to be like elementary middle and high school band jobs mm-hmm. so it, it kind of places that the responsibility if you want to call it that of learning about what you're going to teach it kind of puts that on the individual student then at that point in the yeah. college curriculum yeah. um you know because it's just not in there and a really interesting thing also is that i mentioned how like frederick Fennell is considered kind of the father of the civil war band movement and responsible for reinvigorating people's interest or awareness of america's earliest band history but then at the same time his uh involvement with crafting the collegiate wind ensemble in some ways took us further away from that also because his emphasis with the Eastman Wind Ensemble was to play original compositions written for the medium at an mm-hmm. extremely high level with, uh, if we could call it, minimal instrumentation, you know, like one on a part. Yep, one on a part. Whereas that's, sure. whereas that's getting, you know, a little bit more distant from large bands playing orchestral transcriptions or marches or waltzes kind of thing. So the fact that he was kind of the alpha and the omega, but then... <laughs> At the same time, I, I got a quote that he says uh, it, it was in relation with like the director of the Eastman School of Music at the time or something. And they were talking about possibly either like getting rid of the symphonic band or changing the symphonic band's name. And Frederick Fennell said, no, I want the Eastman Wind Ensemble to be its own experience that helps enrich students' lives that play in it. But I still believe the symphonic band is crucial for their development as well. So like mm-hmm. he saw the symphonic band and the wind ensemble as two different ensembles that students should be playing in both or had the experience playing in both. Yeah. And when you, when you compare the two, I mean, exactly like you said, the, the wind ensemble is much more of a, you know, almost like a chamber group, uh, like in, in this comparison, when you're, when you're talking about like a larger symphonic band, like, like the military bands that we have uh, today, at least, at least the, the premier bands down here in DC mm-hmm. are structured like the uh, symphonic band that you were talking about mm-hmm. that, that, you know, he, Finnell had actually at the University of Rochester kind of first. And then I think mm-hmm. that, that, that that band made its way over to Eastman because um, mm-hmm. he was doing things at both places. Oh, I gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah. But, um, it, and he even, he ran the marching band at University of Rochester too, yes. I think in the, in the very, very early uh, his early days there. Nice. Um, but, um, anyway, so like, like the, the symphonic bands and the, the military bands, that's where you have exactly what you're saying, like playing orchestral transcriptions and stuff like that, where you have a, you know, 
large clarinet section that's supposed to mimic the large violin section, you know, mm -hmm. and you have your full saxophone section, which kind of like saxophones, bassoons, and, you know, there's lower reeds where they mimic the, you know, the violas and the cellos. And then you've got, mm -hmm. you know, the, the big brass section in the back and the euphonium plays, you know, dances between the two roles, you know, mm -hmm. like supporting the, the brass section that would be in an orchestra and then getting the fun cello parts and all the transcriptions. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so even I mean, with the the wind ensemble, and then top schools either having their their top band being a wind ensemble or a wind symphony, just mm -hmm. even calling it either of those things is just ripping the band right out of the the title. It's like they're trying to distance themselves so much from that original tradition and make it sound like an orchestra. You know, like kind of have yeah. that symphony orchestra kind of prestige in the title by itself. Yeah, it's like yeah. Dr. Miller, I think, was saying it will at one point is that in his episode he's like what's wrong with the band bands are green exactly nothing's wrong with the band i mean i would challenge anyone to tell me that like if they were walking around in a park and heard like a community band or like a military band playing like outside in a park that they wouldn't stop and enjoy it for a oh, second yeah. <laughs> you know They're it's like magnets. there's nothing wrong with the band kind of getting back to the uh the college uh, curriculum thing what mm. what kinds of things would you or would you or do you suggest about how uh, these early American brass bands like this American brass band tradition could be um, worked into the, the college experience for undergrads and, and grads at the very least if colleges and universities are still using this Norton and Oxford textbook which they are going to always use mm -hmm. um, there should be some sort of supplemental material at some point, hopefully within those four semesters that gets more into the weeds with this band history. I know it's extremely difficult to do. We talk about it with teaching just regular American history. It's like we say how the year 2020 can be its own, you know, college course someday, just talking about that one year. Right. And the more, the more time that passes, the more difficult it is to get to things. Mm -hmm. I, I totally get that. But again, I think the importance of this time period warrants kind of a shifting around of priorities at some point in those four semesters that students are going to be taking the class. So I think at the very least, that should happen. The next level would be having an entire additional, maybe a fifth semester <laughs> dedicated <laughs> to just band history or maybe uh, work it into a, a band repertoire class kind of thing like a survey class where mm -hmm. you talk about the history and the repertoire all at once. Which I think I've mentioned before was very lucky to have a class like that at Penn State. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and I think I said it before, that was in the last semester mm -hmm. of the last year of my mm -hmm. master's degree. So, you know, it took yeah. uh, four, five and a half years, you know, mm -hmm. of school, yeah, <laughs> of yeah, college yeah. <laughs> to get to the point where a class like that was offered. Yeah. A big part, you know, is obviously students have kind of a set curriculum of what they have to take. And most of the time, this type of thing would only be able to fit in as an elective. And a lot of times exactly. electives are even hard to come by for those credits because they have to be taken up by like chamber ensembles or, mm -hmm. or something like that. So I understand the difficulty uh, with that. And then there's the issue of either having somebody that's qualified to do it or available to do it. There's a, a financial aspect of paying the person right. to be able to do it. So I understand all these things also. Um, not saying there's an easy fix to getting the education element to 
uh, colleges and universities, it would require you know more of a discussion rather than oh yeah, we'll throw a class in here and make it an option. Now it, right. it's a little bit more difficult, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are like options for just the education element, the book learning element of it, which I think is important. But then in terms of a performing ensemble, like we were able to form at George Mason University with the Eighth Green Machine Regiment Band, I mm-hmm. think that as each school has a Baroque ensemble for students to learn Baroque music, a lot of times on Baroque instruments. Like I know my wife did Baroque ensemble and she was able to play on a Baroque flute. A lot of times people are playing harpsichord, you know, in those types of ensembles. Mm-hmm. Just as that ensemble exists for those types of students, I think an early American brass band could exist at colleges and universities for uh, for brass students. I know at Humboldt State University, Dr. Gil Klein was a trumpet professor there, and he also ran a British-style brass band there. Mm-hmm. And he was able to create a small ensemble within the British-style brass band of a few students that were interested and devoted that they would have an offshoot that would rehearse uh, separately. That was an early American offshoot of it. So they had the full British brass band and then a small offshoot of an early American Civil War-style brass band. And they were kind of Mm -hmm. able to, at first, double up some of the instruments that way, have some of the E-flat voices uh, double in both instruments, but then he was eventually able to get some period instruments and they were able to play on those off on the mm-hmm. side. So nice. splitting, you know, British style and early American brass bands doing some kind of combination of that is a financially savvy way maybe of kind of getting some extra mileage out of that type of ensemble. Um, but we're proving at Mason that it's, it's very possible to exist as its own thing as right. well. We're yeah. supported primarily through the athletic band program here at Mason. Um, but we get in the year 2020, we had 20 gigs, 20 paid gigs scheduled before COVID hit. So yeah. there's things that these bands can do out in the community, help make money that students getting a music degree can gain experience from that gigging, that kind of professional lifestyle, get that experience as a student. Um, but then the band also exists as like a standing ceremonial band at the school. Ever wanted one like that too. Uh, our the regiment band at Mason performed the national anthem for a virtual ceremony uh, for the the national anthem for f- uh, last winter's commencement. We right. got to do that just because we were a group that was virtually active and can obviously play <laughs> the Star Spangled Banner. It's in our it's in our book and everything. So right. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of ways that it can be navigated and incorporated. And the students will tell you that they've learned a lot by either playing on the period instruments or early on, even just playing the repertoire on modern instruments. Um, they learned a lot and it's a lot of fun. You know, you get to play, as we've said a few times, very enjoyable music that draws crowds very naturally outside because it's fun music and enjoyable music to listen to. So yeah. it's very very different from playing some of the the dustier <laughs> things that we might be uh, more accustomed to playing in collegiate chamber ensembles. Yeah, which is another kind of um, thing because like a lot of schools will already have like a brass ensemble or something like with the brass and like in the brass chamber music uh, program. So mm-hmm. um, like how you were saying at at Humboldt State, you know, they were kind of able to take interested people from you know an already existing thing uh and and then and then start one of these up 
I mean, we, it's, you know, well documented now that, <laughs> that you, uh, you know, formed the, at, at Mason, that, that eighth GM regiment band. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were, um, what were some of the challenges that you ran into when you were trying to form that or like kind of how did that all come together? Because you're, you are an example of, you know, someone who has formed one of these bands, mm-hmm. you know, within the last five years mm-hmm. at a university. So kind of what were, what were some of the things that led to that and some of the challenges you ran into? Yeah. So again, we, I wanted to form a group like this because initially I wanted to take advantage of what I saw at the time as a market that was untapped in our Northern Virginia, Fairfax specific area. I formed the group in 2017 after mentioning the idea to Dr. Michael Nickens, Doc Nix from the George Mason green machine. You might've mm-hmm. seen him in the, the rage against the machine viral video. He's, he's famous uh, yeah. for that video. Um, but just reached out to him in 2017 and he's like, yeah, form it. We'll, we'll support you. So, the primary or the, the first thing that we wanted to consider when forming the group was if we were going to have some sort of visual impression and if so, what we were going to do mm-hmm. even in 2017 before 2020, you know, there, the civil war was a, a hot topic. There was a lot of heat on the civil war. The monument debate has been going on for years now. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels like it's come to a head or is coming to a head, you know, in the last year or two, but it was still right. a thing back in 2017. We knew that this music existed throughout the 19th century, but we were drawn, our group was drawn to the Civil War because we have a fife and drum corps here at George Mason who mm-hmm. wears colonial uniforms, but they're green instead of red or blue. Um, so they have green colonial uniforms, which is a military uniform, and we really liked the, the juxtaposition or the, the side-by-side of having two military-like uniforms. So for us, we went with a green Civil War-era uniform, which was modeled after the Burdan sharpshooters. They didn't have a band, um, but the uniforms that we're wearing are, are loosely based off of theirs. But we wanted to wear a uniform that, uh, for us, reflected the school colors and matched that sister ensemble for us. We, we said, you know, if... If we were playing as a Virginia band, we'd be wearing gray. And for a collegiate band, that does not seem like a smart <laughs> decision is to to wear gray and be associated uh, with a brass band. I don't I don't think it's a good idea to wear gray even in the the reenacting hobby right now. But yeah, that, that's that, we talk about that a little bit in our in our panel discussion, which will come out in two weeks. That people right. can hear. Yeah. Um, so, so we knew it was either blue nothing or something else and Mm -hmm. you know we would have leaned towards blue if we needed to but then we we had the idea to do this green so we we decided to go with that groups that are forming they're gonna have to make their own decisions with that Uh, as i said i i don't suggest going gray if you're gonna do anything you know go go blue or not at all there's plenty of bands that are very successful right now that are just playing the music usually on period instruments but are doing either uh, a non-impression, like Stephen, you were wearing for our uh, my lecture recital. You were wearing all black, like Saxton's mm-hmm. and Americus and Chestnut currently do, right? Or you could wear civilian clothing, like I wore in my lecture recital, or like the Dodworth Saxhorn Band. They usually wear some sort of civilian impression. Yeah, it's like a Victorian nineteenth-century town 
everyday man kind of impression I think could, right. could work really well and is actually probably one of the, the better, I think, options for, mm-hmm. for bands to do if they want to have that visual element at all. Right. Well, and that, that kind of, um, this is a question that I had uh, kind of pinned for later on, but I think it ties in here, um, is that whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. these bands are kind mm-hmm. of very closely tied to the Civil War because the Civil War was such a major event in the country. And I mean, it's well-documented all the ways that war in general can really drive a lot of innovation. So when we talk about the effect of the Civil War on these brass bands, lots of music was being arranged for these bands because there were lots of bands around during that time. Lots of mm-hmm. lots of bands active, um, especially in the, the activities of the war. I mean, a lot of these town bands that existed would enlist in, you know, the army as a band and be attached to a regiment. I mean, the, the, the community band that I played with in high school, you can trace all the way back to 1850 or yeah. Geez, I'm getting all my, my numbers. All these numbers are scrolling around, but you can trace them back to like 1858. They, they started as a uh, firehouse band, all brass. And then when, when um, Abraham Lincoln, you know, had this big call for, for soldiers for the union, a lot of people in that area of Pennsylvania just joined right up with no hesitation. And this band did exactly that. And they were attached to the 93rd Pennsylvania regiment. Um, you know, so, so anyway, getting back to the fact that again, whether we like it or not, these bands are kind of tied to the civil war. Um, and so then when you, when you form one now, you have to, you have to make that decision on, you know, whether or not you're going to reflect that in the visual, you know, representation of the band and spoiler alert, the featured album for this episode is Chris's lecture recital, which is actually a video, which is great because you can see everything that Chris just talked about the visual representation of the band. There are four that you'll see on stage uh, in that, in that video. So you'll see the green, uh, you know, civil war uniforms that the band wears. uh, And then you'll see people in black, uh, like tuxedos with the period uh, ties and hats. And then Chris is in like a town, a traditional like town dress. And then I conducting was in like modern all black, like what you would see, uh, you know, if you went to a college concert of like their symphonic band or, you know, it's a very long winded way of asking the question of, do you think that because these bands are kind of really closely tied to the civil war, is that, does that help or hurt them in today's, you know, kind of academic setting, um, since that's what we're talking about. And we obviously both of us think there's a lot of value in having uh, this era of American band music uh, in the curriculum. It's definitely something that I know a lot of people will take pause with and and take notice of and, and have to kind of think through themselves. I'm not going to lie, the podcast show title and my research title and the, the phrase I'm trying to coin, Early American Brass Band, in addition to all the reasons why I said I think it's applicable, an additional reason is because I'm trying to distance it slightly from just the Civil War connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, the Civil War by itself does, as you mentioned, have a lot of these uh, these memories and emotions that can get stirred up um, just by the title of the Civil War, just mentioning the Civil War can right. can stir up all these things. So mm-hmm. I think for an academic institution, 
uh, it's it's a case by case basis. You know, it it really depends. The bands themselves, early American brass bands, as we mentioned, existed all throughout the 19th century. So this is only a four year period that the term civil war can really be applied to these types of ensembles. But as you mentioned, because of the civil war, so many more bands existed at that time. So many were played. The instruments were produced in such great number to supply these instruments. The music was written and shared and arranged for these bands. So I think we can't skip over, obviously, the Civil War period because it's the the life injection, the, the fuel that really got the fire for the brass band movement really burning and, yeah, and yeah. why bands are even existing today, why there's instruments for us to even be playing today. I have mm-hmm. three of them sitting next to me right now. They, they were right. well can't guess that much but it's very likely that these wouldn't be here right now even manufactured if the need for the instruments at that time uh, exactly wasn't, wasn't so needed um e- each either academic institution or or town community bands that's forming will need to make kind of that decision for themselves if they want to go with a civil war impression or not um but you know like i said we chose two it's an altered version of a of a Civil War uniform. But even that being said, we play music from before the Civil War, from after the Civil War. And in my dissertation, you saw that we've even played some contemporary pieces also exactly. to kind of show that even though my E.G. Wright baritone was made in 1864, it wasn't only playing music that was written in 1864 and 1865. Obviously, it's existed since then. Mm-hmm. More music can be played on it than what was written for it at the time. You know, so precisely yeah. the the instruments, the bands that were playing, and they're they're living and breathing current ensembles that don't need to be pigeonholed into that four year period. It sounds like I'm being contradictory to even what I'm saying, but I'm saying that you can have that Civil War impression just know know your facts and and be able to defend it going into it but then also know that you're not necessarily pigeonholing yourself once you make that decision also exactly yeah yeah and i think you know some of it also has to do with uh you know where the band is going to play um i mean the just the area that we're in there are so many you know civil war battlefields down here that are now national parks and all of these parks have events. Uh, well, <laughs> they used to before uh, we weren't allowed to see people face to face, you know, and I'm sure they will afterwards. Um, and we've we've had guests on before, particularly uh, Yari, who you know have echoed the sentiment that um, the bands at these reenactments and at these events really, really kind of instantly give the event, you know, the atmosphere. I think that people are trying to like when they're doing a living history type thing, you know, you're really trying to convey and tell a story of what it was like in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and music has a lot to do with that. I mean, you can like music has a lot of power in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is it, it can instantly take you to, you know, a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also bleeds into the visual impression too. Um, you know, there is, there, there can be, particularly if you're playing a gig at, um, like let's say, uh, 
you know, one of the battlefields down here and you're playing civil war music or civil war era music, you know, from the 18, you know, fifties and sixties, so that, that time period, you're playing that music on period horns in black suits and modern black dress shirts. There is a little bit of a, uh, you know, your ears aren't matching what you're seeing. Um, so yeah, exactly. Like you said, I mean, when you're, when you're forming one of these groups, especially at, at a college, uh, or, or an academic institution, there are a lot of things to consider. Uh, but the point, the point is whatever you decide, uh, you know, there are responsibilities that come with that then, uh, that you have to carry, uh, and know your facts and know the reasons why you made the decision you made. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's just the name of the game and that's going to be influenced by a lot of different factors. So, mm-hmm. uh, there's no one way to form one of these bands today. You know, the, the way that you did it at Mason is one of many ways that it mm-hmm. could be done. Um, yeah. And exa- exactly what you said, you're not pigeonholing yourself into one, uh, you know, one time. Like the, the band at Mason, you know, could choose to do a gig not in the uniforms if you wanted to. There's nothing mm-hmm. saying that because you have uniforms, you have to do them on every gig. Yeah, we're even in the process of trying to get a, a set of like town civilian band uniforms also. Mm-hmm not to necessarily replace our civil war uniforms, but to have the option to do both. We'll always have the option to do like modern concert dress. We all have black, you know, Mm -hmm. black suits and stuff, but just having options also, you know, gives you that, that flexibility to, to be malleable with that, that kind of visual impression. I think what you were saying also uh, earlier and what I also said earlier about like, bands not necessarily considering themselves to be reenactors and how a lot of these performances i think are seen as either community bands or amateur bands or or in a lot of cases professional bands going out and playing a job i think there's a certain connotation like we mentioned with the civil war or maybe with civil war reenacting uh with propagation possibly of the lost cause and what all those kinds of things can kind of feed into each other Mm -hmm. Um, institutions being wary of the civil war for those reasons, you know, I, I think is valid, but then there's the opportunity to also educate and to reclaim it ourselves in a way also as being a, an entertainment ensemble, a ensemble that is going for a certain type of aesthetic, not necessarily with any type of political messaging (laughs) Mm -hmm. or anything, but, uh, yeah a band to be a band right nothing wrong with a band unless unless it's uh what's a really bad band that everybody makes fun of oh nickelback yeah unless it's nickelback yeah unless it's nickelback (laughs) (laughs) that's that band's not okay to be a band so one one thing that we haven't talked about yet and i just definitely want to hit before we uh get some concluding thoughts is repertoire so where um what repertoire you know, from the period exists. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And then um, some examples that you highlight uh, in your lecture recital um, and in, I'm sure in your dissertation, you know, some instances where that period repertoire has informed or been included in quote unquote modern band uh, repertoire. Yeah. So I'll, I'll largely redirect people to the lecture recital. That's about an hour's worth of material that can go into it in greater depth than I can mm-hmm. hear, but just very broadly in terms of repertoire, there are band pieces, pieces of music that still 
or pieces of music that have survived to today that have the instrumentation written out for brass bands, either in score format or individual parts. The one that easily comes to mind is the Brass Band Journal. Uh, it was released mm-hmm. in the 1850s. There's band books by like the 26 North Carolina and the Port Royal Band and Broadhead and, and all these other uh, music collections that are available mainly through the Library of Congress. These are all examples of early American brass band pieces that can be played today. And we know by playing them today, they were essentially as close to, you know, what people back in the day would have been playing was we're literally reading off of the same page. Um, Typos and all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Water damage and, and missing corners of pages and all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then in addition to that, we have a lot of music that's written prior to a lot of these publications, mainly in the 1830s and 1840s, that exist primarily today as piano reductions. These bands, you know, existed as early as 1835, but their music survives today in the form of these piano reductions that publishers made so that when people heard the pieces of music outside by these bands, they could then go and purchase the music for piano and then perform it in their home on piano instead of like asking a full 14 piece band to come into their parlor. You know, that's a little impractical. Right. So yeah. reduce it for piano, but then a lot of those pieces don't exist anymore, <clears throat> the band parts. So we have these piano reductions that, as I did in my lecture recital, you can orchestrate out for uh, a band using roughly the similar voicing and arranging practices that they would have back in the day. Now, mm-hmm. there there could be some melodic or harmonic lines omitted from those piano reductions. There could be whole sections that were omitted. Um, there, you don't know what you don't know. There could be right. things missing. There's, there's likely things missing. Um, but it's also better than nothing. It, it is nice to hear some of these pieces and some of these melodies on brass instruments uh, in a similar way that they might have existed. Yeah. If only the phonograph was around like 50 years earlier. Yeah. (laughs) We could know for sure what's missing from those piano transcriptions. That'd that'd be nice. So we have, well, in, in that case, we have like, um, like what a quick step. We have some piano reductions of that piece, but it's interesting, but some of the piano reductions will say, you know, as performed by Ned Kendall on it, but then it doesn't have the virtuosic that doesn't have that really fast virtuosic section in the piano reduction. But hmm. we do have that one as a key bugle solo, and we do right. know. So if you just extrapolate that to other piano arrangements, yeah, there's likely parts that are missing from those, um, which is unfortunate. But again, it's better than nothing. Right. So we have those piano reductions. We have the brass band versions that existed at the time. There's, uh, I guess the last one that I can briefly say is at the end of my lecture recital, we talk about playing kind of more contemporary pieces and how if brass bands didn't evolve into concert bands or if orchestra didn't become the dominant large ensemble in the United States, if brass bands just started in 1835 and have went strong till 2021, you know, what would they be playing mm-hmm. kind of thing? So. You know, we have like college marching bands and pep bands and DCI and those kinds of groups playing popular music or very loud in your face brass music. Um, But in my lecture recital, we also wrote 
new music, both a completely Anthony O'Toole wrote a completely original piece, uh, loosely in the style of a 19th century brass band piece with a 19th century theme with a civil war theme that we mm-hmm. were able to perform as a brand new piece of music. And then we also took chandelier by Sia, a 2014 pop song and arranged that in the style of a 19th century, like quick step or, or a very quick March. And Andrew Velez right. did that arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so those two pieces are like aesthetically authentic to the time period, either like playing new arrangements or playing popular music, but in the 21st century and kind of adapting that practice and doing it today. Most mm-hmm. bands don't do that. We're, we're one of the few, if only band that has taken that step to playing an original piece and a 2014 <laughs> piece. But as I mentioned in the lecture recital, some bands play a Shokin Farewell and that was written in the 1980s. So right. there's some, some play for sure. There's some give and take that can be given right. with the repertoire that can be performed by these bands for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a proof of concept, you know, that the stuff from the Brass Band Journal, you know, isn't necessarily the only stuff that mm-hmm. a group like this could play. Yeah. Um, and then if some, like if, if at a college someone has a particular interest in arranging, you know, yeah. um, that's always, more music is, is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. For um, sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, you, you also have instances of where these, these tunes, because bands in the 19th century were playing you know, a lot of popular music and tunes that people knew, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have instances where those tunes then work their way into uh, pieces for concert band or wind ensemble, if you want to call yeah. it that. I mean, the mm-hmm. one that comes to mind is, what is that? American Salute oh, yeah. by mm-hmm. Mort- Morton Gould. Yeah. His last name always makes me chuckle. It's like mm-hmm. so close to ghoul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that that's based on when Johnny comes marching home, which is mm-hmm. a very, very popular tune that shows up in a lot of stuff from the 19th century yeah um so that's a that's a great piece too yeah you need a lot of good bassoon players for that i remember yeah the bassoon parts are no joke it's it's got well it's not variations necessarily but there's a yeah a big bassoon solo in the middle it's exciting yeah good stuff yeah yeah cool that was the first piece i think i've ever heard an english horn on i remember playing it in like Mm -hmm. a, a high school honor festival uh actually hopefully it's you know like what? an english horn if it was in high school oh no it did it did um i think uh professor maiello was the guest conductor oh, that year. i'm having like surfing. flashbacks yeah exactly he, he professor maiello anthony maiello is at as is at mason and has been for a long time yeah. but i i distinctly remember being in the lebanon high school auditorium i think playing that piece i have to go back and double check i'll make a correction in the show notes if i need to not that anyone cares about uh, Pennsylvania District 7 Upper uh, <laughs> High School Band Festival. <laughs> so in uh, but, Colonel Arnold Gabriel's book, The Force of Destiny, he mentions how he was the director of the School of Music at George Mason, basically the first one. He was the one that uh, became the director <clears throat> when it split off, when the School of Music split off and became its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentions how he wanted to, uh, when he hired Anthony Maiello, Maiello came and like asked him a question. He was like, "Should I should I do this?" And Gabriel's like, "If if you have to ask me that, then I hired the wrong person." And then Maiello was like fully autonomous after that. He was able to do whatever he wanted. So yeah, that's a very good book. If if you want a a good book recommendation, "The Force of Destiny" by Gabriel's son. His name's yeah. escaping me right now, but it's about Arnold Gabriel. It's really good. 
it's been on my list of books to buy and read for a long time and i just haven't gotten around to it now that uh dissertation life has totally taken over Um, (laughs) yeah so i I just finished and now steven's getting right into it (laughs) exactly yeah this has been great chris is there anything that we missed uh or that that you want to highlight before we before we wrap it up no, I'm feeling really good about it. When the dissertation's available on ProQuest, I paid for it to not be behind a paywall. So I paid for you, so you didn't have to. So once it's available on ProQuest, uh, I'll share it through the all of our social media uh, outlets so you can read it if you want. It's uh, 200 pages. It, it's, I don't know. You can probably find something better to read. But, but if you're interested, <laughs> by all means, go for it. And now that that's submitted, also I've made a number of my resources available uh, on our website, if you haven't been there recently, www.eabbpodcast.com. You go to the resource tab, and there's a, a number of new sections in there, all things that I use for my my dissertation. So it is yours now. Go ahead and, and look at it. And, uh, yeah, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> nice. Well, cool. Well, I didn't have to set you up for a plug opportunity this time. That was, that was, that was yeah, nice. There you go. It's, like, it's <laughs> like I know the format or something. It's crazy. <laughs> right. It's like we've been doing this for a year, over a year now yeah. at this point. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk through it, Chris. Yeah, of course. That was, thank uh, you. That was yeah. good. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> If you like this episode, you can support the production of more episodes like it uh, by supporting us on Patreon and Teespring. So you can just go to patreon.com slash EABB podcast. And you can also search the Early American Brass Band podcast on Teespring. Um, And those are some ways that you can lend some financial support to the show uh, so that we can cover uh, the back-end production and hosting costs, uh, which is always appreciated. Um, and you can also support us and find us on all social media platforms in YouTube. So you can give us a like uh, and a share if you'd, if you'd like, um, and you can stay up to date with everything that we put out on social media. This episode's featured album is Chris's Lecture Recital, which was a blast to film. Uh, I was conducting on it and a lot of our good friends are playing on it and Chris is playing on it. You'll hear Chris solo. You'll hear Chris talk. It looks fantastic. Thanks to the good folks over at the Green Machine uh, Media. That's Josh Cruz kind of heads up that that whole effort with with all the video and audio over there. And he has a whole team of people who help him out. So uh, I think there were like six cameras and a lot of microphones. Uh, so it looks fantastic and it sounds great too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we hope that you'll uh, go check that out. We'll have that linked in our show notes. Um, so it's a good mix of Chris uh, presenting, you know, through his speaking, um, his his research, uh, similar to what we did here. Uh, and then there's uh, a lot of music in there as well. So you can hear the band play. Uh, all sorts of things and it like I said it looks and sounds great so we do hope that you'll go check that out links up in the show notes we hope you'll join us for our next episode episode 40 which will be our season 2 finale which we're doing something a little bit different it's going to feature a panel discussion with four previous guests Yari Villanueva from the Federal City Brass Band Jeff Stockham from the Excelsior Cornet Band Bob Backus from Old Town Brass and David Goins from Saxton's Cornet Band they and us they and us us and them we'll all be we. discussing we we <laughs> will be <laughs> we will be discussing uh, how COVID and the pandemic in the last year and a half has affected 
all of our individual personal music making, uh, our bands specifically, and then also how we think it has affected the early American brass band community going forward. So that's our first ever panel discussion that we hope you'll join us in two weeks for, for episode 40, our season two finale. Thank you so much, and we hope to see you then.